Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, you are very welcome back to The Tonight Show. John Gilligan walks free from a Spanish court. The convicted criminal accepted a late plea deal, admitting drugs and weapons charges, and is handed a suspended sentence and a fine. Today's Spanish court developments coincide with the first in a series of interviews with the 71-year-old, which aired here on Virgin Media Television tonight. I'm not really sorry for the things I've done. I could say I'm sorry, I could lie and say I'm sorry. You'd have to ask me, I'm not answering you honest. No, I, I, I don't, I, it doesn't stop me sleeping. Also on the programme, a driver clocked doing more than 160 kilometres an hour and hundreds caught speeding on National Slowdown Day. We speak to the top Garda in charge of the operation. And the new political season ahead with election fever around the corner. Gilligan has walked free from a Spanish court despite admitting drugs and weapons charges. The 71-year-old convicted criminal accepted a late plea deal that saw him handed a fine and a suspended sentence. It comes as the crime boss appeared tonight in a controversial documentary here on Virgin Media Television. In a series of in-depth interviews, Gilligan lifts the lid on his life of crime. I've never killed anybody. But if I was confident that somebody was going to come and kill me, I'd have no hesitation in trying to get to him first. I'd eliminate my problem. Well, I'm joined by TV producer David Harvey from Peninsula Television, who produced tonight's John Gilligan documentary, by our media political correspondent, Sean Defoe, Danielle McKenna from the Rialto Youth Project, and on Skype by crime and defence editor of the Irish Daily Star and Irish Daily Mirror, Michael O'Toole, and Michael Lachlan from Advic, which advocates for victims of homicide. Well, tonight's documentary has been criticised by government ministers and by Jimmy Gearan, Veronica Gearan's brother, who we did invite on the programme today, but was not available for interviews. Let's go to Michael O'Toole first to get the very latest on what happened in Spain today. Michael, I think there was quite a bit of shock, actually, at the fine that was handed down and at the suspended sentence. At one point over the weekend, it was reported that John Gilligan was facing anywhere between six and eight years in prison. So what happened? Uh, play deals are quite common in Spain care, but I think Speaking to some sources in Spain last night, they would concede that this was, it is being regarded as a, a lenient sentence. You're quite right. He was facing up to eight years. He was facing drugs charges, uh, a charge connected to the discovery of a, a Magnum revolver at his house in Torrevieja. And he was also facing a charge of belonging to a crime gang which carried 10 months. Now, that 
charge was dropped. He pleaded guilty to the firearms charge and he pleaded guilty to the drugs charges. So he could have been facing maybe six and a half, seven years, but he got a 22 month sentence after pleading guilty. Now, interestingly, as an aside, I think that's the first time Gilligan stood up in court and has admitted his guilt for any crime. So he did that today in the courtroom. But in Spain, the convention is if you get a sentence of 24 months or fewer, that sentence is suspended. So if if you get a, a two year sentence, you can walk free. And that's essentially what happened to Gilligan today. He wasn't the only person, was he, uh, up today? I think there was eight other defendants in total, including some family members. What happened there? Yeah, his his uh, son Darren was actually extradited from Ireland. He he was charged with uh, eight other people uh, in Spain in 2020 after this drugs operation was busted by the Policia Nacional. He came back to Ireland. He was arrested last year by the extradition unit of Garda Síochána, brought to brought to custody the High Court, and was extradited. No, so he was brought in. He was the only person who was in custody. He will be released, I believe, to, to, uh, later on tomorrow. So everybody's walking free. There is one other person, Sharon Oliver, who is Mister is John Gilligan partner. Now, she is uh, denying any involvement in any criminality, so there will be another hearing tomorrow. Gilligan, John Gilligan is going to attend that, and the expectation is, I think he gave some sort of indication about this today, that he will give evidence on her behalf saying that she's innocent. As you said there, uh, Michael, he did plead guilty to two, two counts. What did the evidence and his guilty plea tell us about his continued involvement in crime? Uh, John Gilligan is an inveterate criminal. Um, He has been involved in criminality since he was a a very young teenager. He has done quite a few jail terms in Ireland. And I think psychologists would say that the best indicator of future action is past action. So it's no surprise that Gilligan was caught up to no good in Spain in 2020. He's 71 now, but I wouldn't be surprised if he came to the attention of law enforcement in Spain again. There were photographs of him leaving court today with sort of a big smile, a a big grin on his face. And there has been, as we said there at the top of the programme, criticism from Jimmy Gearan, Veronica Gearan's brother, and from the Minister for Drugs about Virgin Media uh, airing this documentary, Confessions of a Crime Boss, that features extensive interviews with John Gilligan, where he's in no way repentant, it would appear, for what he did. Should he be given a platform, do you think? I do. Um, I couldn't be a hypocrite. In 2021, I went over to Spain and I confronted him at his house in Tarifieja. It's a quite a. Uh, it was quite a large villa at the time. So I wanted to talk to him. I know several journalists. I can think of John Mooney in the Sunday Times when he was in another paper in 1996. He interviewed John Gilligan. There have been several interviews with John Gilligan. He's a person of interest. He has a story to tell. He has a story to be challenged. Now, this, these, uh, and I have to, uh, to declare an interest. I did a serialisation in The Star and the Mirror over the last four days of Jason O'Toole's book, The, the Reporter Who Interviewed uh, John Gilligan. So, I mean, we ran it. I think it was a, a very good piece of journalism. It's a very hard piece of journalism because uh, reading the book and listening, watching the documentary today, Gilligan is a liar. You can see he's a, a complete and utter liar. It's very hard journalistically. Do you fact check everything John Gilligan says? If you did, you'd be interrupting him every 30 seconds. So Jason, in my mind, he did a very good job under very trying circumstances because the, the object is to get the man to tell his story. And I think he did that very well, but he certainly there is a, certainly an interest in talking to this man. OK, I want to just go to our panel here because we have a producer, David Harvey, who was involved in this documentary. Do you think 
John Gilligan, an inveterate criminal, has a right to put his side of the story forward? Well, I don't think he's put his side of the story forward uh, in a sort of a loose way. I think what we did in this particular documentary, and this is no different, by the way, to a documentary we did uh, a month ago on Rose Dugdale, you know, who aided and abetted the IRA uh, criminally over many years. It's no different to the, the other sort of programmes that Virgin Media do, for example, on people like the Kinnahans, on the Hutches, uh, or if we were to do one on Malcolm MacArthur, for example, who is a convicted murderer. Um, the difference, I think, in this particular situation is that the, the words come out of John Gilligan's mouth. It's not a documentary in the conventional sense. And people had a problem with that, uh, really because they thought John Gilligan was being glorified, that he had a platform. But I think if you watched the programme and you watched the other programmes, you'll, you'll, you'll see that really everything he says is dissected and in, in, in almost all cases contradicted by the people who are on the programme as well as himself. Is there any criminal that you think we shouldn't interview? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, it depends in what context. Um, I think there's a huge public interest in stories. There's a huge public interest in crime. Um, but I'm, I, I'm saying interview, but not with the point of trying to let people off the hook. I think John Gilligan in this particular programme starts to dig himself a hole and by the end of part three has dug himself uh, a crater, quite frankly. Um, but what I think is, what my, is the my, Michael purpose, is right. I suppose, my, well, you say there's public interest. What is the public interest here? Well, the public interest here is hearing a notorious figure, uh, in fact, the most notorious criminal of the 20th century, tell his story and then pick it apart bit by bit. Uh, we've done it with other criminals. We've done it with major public figures. Um, so how different is, is John Gilligan? By the way, I mean, you know, you know the, the word glorification, which has been mentioned time and time and time again, why would anyone want to glorify a guy like John Gilligan? I just suppose you could yeah. see, David, from the interview there, that he was actually quite enjoying sort of recounting some of the crimes that he was involved in in the past. Yeah, John, John Gilligan is driven by his own ego. I, I also think, and back to the, the points you were making and also that Michael was confirming, I think John Gilligan felt he was going to prison today. In fact, we didn't know the trial was today. It's a complete coincidence that the programme's going out on the, on, on the day where he went to court. We had no idea it was going to be today. We knew it was going to be sometime soon. Uh, yesterday, I heard it was sometime this week. I didn't know it was this morning. Um, I genuinely feel he felt he was going to die in prison in the next three to four years. So, so therefore, let's, let's he get saw it all this there, yeah. as his yeah. opportunity Absolutely. to put his side of the story, yes. and well, that's the criticism. He, he to... doesn't deserve that oh, platform. No, but I, I disagree. He, he, he went to tell his side of the story, but his side of the story doesn't hold any water. It's all full of lies. And we knew that when we went to interview him, and that has proven to be the case. What do you say then to the family of Veronica Guerin who have spoken out against this documentary? They say, you know, there's an allegation within it that Veronica Guerin injured herself on purpose for notoriety. That's an allegation that he made. And uh, they say that this is John Gilligan's final blow to the memory of Veronica Guerin. Do you understand their disgust at this? I absolutely do. And, you know, Jimmy Guerin, who's the person who's been talking about this, and I know each other 40 years. I knew Veronica very well. I met her when I was 19, and I knew her very well until the time she died. Um, is this disrespectful to her? No, no, well, no, I don't think so. I understand Jimmy's point. This programme is not about Veronica Guerin. Just let's be clear about that. If this was a programme that, that desecrated the memory of Veronica, I would say absolutely. But this is a, a programme about uh, John Gilligan. Veronica Guerin happens to be a, a key part of his story. He claims he wasn't in any way involved in her shooting. But I will say, the last thing I said to John Gilligan as I left him in Torrevieja in Spain in February of this year was, I have never been in a situation all of my life, and I've made many, many crime programs and observed crime, like you have, like everybody in this panel has. I've never heard of a gang going rogue and going off and doing something like this, or was done to Veronica. 
um, without the say-so uh, or indeed the knowledge of the, the crime boss. It never happens anywhere in these criminal, criminal environments. It probably didn't happen here. OK, I want to go to uh, Michael from ADVIC, which is a group that recognises victims of crime, specifically represents the families of homicide victims who clearly don't um, have a voice anymore. Do you feel, Michael, that the public interest is served by giving John Gilligan this platform? Um, well, the way uh, I see it is these TV programmes uh, basically cause the families of homicide um, horrendous harm. Um, it's glorifying um, the criminal again. Um, the system is so heavily stacked against victims, um, which the media glorifies, because that's what the public want to hear. Unless it's their own families who, who, who have suffered a homicide, then they wouldn't be watching these programmes. You know, um, uh, if you're a victim of, of, of a homicide, you're no longer on, on earth. Um, your families don't have a voice. Yet the media are quite happy to, you know, cover these criminals all the time, day and night, in all the newspapers, all the TV programmes. But the victims of crimes are never heard, you know, and that's the real concern about this. The victims of crime get very little say, very little coverage. And it's all the time about next week, it'll be someone else. It'll be another book story. It'll be someone else in prison, coming out of prison, going back into prison. It's all the time about the perpetrators who cause all the problems that get in all the coverage and victims are forgotten about all the time. All right, David, as you said, you are a documentary maker. You make a lot of programmes about crime. Do you accept what Michael is saying there? This caused horrendous harm to victims and victims are forgotten? Of course it causes harm. I mean, it would be very stupid not to acknowledge that. But I, I will tell you something. I mean, we, we made 100 hours of crime television last year. Um, we wouldn't have made one of them if we didn't have the agreement of the family or of the district attorney when you come to America or of law enforcement in the United States or in the UK. You simply cannot get the cooperation uh, unless you have the family's agreement. And that, that happens all of the time. Um, again, I stress this is not a programme about Veronica Guerin. This is a programme about John Gilligan. Um, this but there, is not there are a, many other people and many other individuals whose who lives are harmed by John Gilligan. I, by I, look, I, 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 can't, I can't deny that. But it is a programme about John Gilligan. I will say that first and foremost. All right, Sean Defoe, you had your concerns about this documentary, but you changed your mind after watching it. Why? Yeah, well, when you put yourself into the, the shoes of the Gearan family or anyone, as Michael has just mentioned there, like, if it was your family, you wouldn't want this person on television. You wouldn't want this person being uh, potentially glorified and interviewed. But I don't think anyone who actually watches that can come away thinking, yeah, this is a good guy. This is a guy that I want to be like. This is a life that I also would like to lead. You know, it comes across a bit like John Gilligan sort of telling his war, his fireside war stories. And here's all the things I, I did, you know, as a criminal, confessing to all sorts of stealings and, and robberies and, and et cetera. But I find it hard to look at that and say that's a glorification of the man. It's more of a, you know, this is someone who is now out in the cold, who is no longer a big figure or as big a figure as he was. Uh, and is sort of a bit of a pathetic figure rather than someone who's been glorified. So you say there is journalistic merit in it. Do you take on board what Michael said, Madvik, that victims' voices in this country are not heard? 
Yeah, completely. Look, it's it's very, very difficult to represent them. And there is a huge public interest in, in crime stories and in these gangs. And there are a lot of people, a lot of young people. We see that now in the amount of young people who are, are in gangs in around Dublin City, for example, who do see this as a, a glorious life. And the media does have to do a little bit of looking at itself to say, why, why is that? And how are we portraying people through different programmes, documentary or otherwise, through, through entertainment programmes? At the same time, I do think there is journalistic merit in interviewing these people. I do think there is a merit in seeing their side of the story and then picking it apart. Because if you don't talk about something, if it's something that just goes on in the dark, it's still going to happen out there, whether we're talking about it or not. Would you agree with that, Danielle? I mean, you work in Rialto, an area of Dublin that would have felt the scourge of somebody like John Gilligan for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of the issue around this is um, some of the messages that it puts out around that kind of sensationalising um, kind of criminal gangs and stuff. And for us, what's really important is, is that when we're working with a young person that we're resp responding to a need and not just looking at a behaviour and things like criminal behaviour because the problem is, is we're looking at this as a justice issue. But violence for us is systemic. Violence for us is based around inequality. We really have to look at the issue and the relationship between class and violence and gender and violence because we can't ignore the fact that this is a gender issue also. Well, how do some of the young people that you work with Danielle, view a programme like this, view a person like John Gilligan, do you think? Yeah, well, one of the things, and um, not based on this story, but a, a, another programme that actually occurred a couple of years ago, um, many of the young people, it was shot in an area like the place where I work. And this is what happens, that kind of sensationalism and that message that gets put out there around this fame and the glory and the wealth. But actually... This was is, a drama series. It was, yeah. And we ended up uh, working alongside that the, the people who worked on that drama to really discuss some of the issues around problematic behaviours on power and dominance and vulnerability and how that young working class young people can be groomed into these kind of lifestyles based on issues like poverty, addiction and all the other things that come with that. So we have to be really careful. And I think one of the things about the messages that we're putting out there is, is one of the messages was around that young people are born criminals. That was a message in the Gilligan one. We have to be careful. That theory has been uh, completely uh, disarrayed for many, many years. Young people are conditioned. Young people grow into a life of learned behaviours. We live in a society that breeds violence and we have to start looking at violence as a health issue and not just a justice issue. And until we're starting to do that, then we won't get to, to win the war on drugs. We won't get to win yeah. around these cycles that continue to perpetuate uh, communities. Uh, what to that point, uh, David Harvey, that Danielle makes, you know, and I, I did pick up on that from watching the documentary that John Gilligan does normalise what he does. He actually makes it sound like there was, you know, a sense of adventure, some of his earlier crimes, that there was a sense of fun, that that does actually glamorise it for young people in communities who perhaps are considering a life of crime as well, the best opportunity. Well, maybe. I mean, he, he grew up in, in deprivation, really, you know. I mean, they, were, they moved out of the inner city of Dublin, they moved to Ballyfermot, they had no money, they were in an abusive household. Um, he leaves school at 14, you know, these, you bring, there's loads of various issues in there, like you, you take education and uh, proper parenting and whatever, whatever way you want to, environmental issues and so on. And media? Um, yeah, well, not, not when he was growing up, but, but certainly now is certainly a part of it, yeah, sure. Um, and I think that, 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 well, you know, as I've said again, uh, Gilligan is a busted flush. I mean, he is, he is in his 70s, he has gone rags, riches, back to rags pretty much. Uh, where he is now. Um, today, it's much more concerning. I mean, you're talking, you're talking about uh, 
a long, long time since he was king of the castle. And it's a completely different criminal world now. So all the points that Danielle makes are completely valid. Um, just go back to you, um, Mick O'Toole, if you're still there, to go back to the point that um, both Sean Defoe and Danielle were making about the role of media here. I mean, I was looking at the newspapers today and they were talking about the monkey gang, you know, the monikers that we give these gang members. We've had the General, the Penguin, the Gucci gang, and a new gang in Dublin, Mr Big, Mr Flashy. Do we, in the media, play into this sort of fascination that people have with criminals? Do we glamorise it? I, I've uh, written about hundreds of criminals and no criminal has ever thanked me for writing about them. I've had plenty of threats. Uh, I've I've been assaulted. Nobody has ever said, Michael, that was a great story about me. Thanks very much. I've um, just, uh, and what Michael said, I've, I, I've spoken to far too many victims. One of the things that my job is to go and talk to victims and their families. And we do that. And we, in the Star and the Mirror and in other papers, we give them a voice and uh, we we give victims far more a voice than perpetrators and we do confront perpetrators. It is not to big them up, it is to confront them and ask them hard questions. Um, I have to be honest, I really don't like nicknames. Nicknames are suboptimal, but nicknames are used for legal reasons. We can't call people by their real names. So you have to, and you can't keep using the same terminology. So And sometimes nicknames say like the Gucci gang, they do come from the street and we reflect that and we make no apologies for that. But look, that, that's what it is. We have to report what is is going on and sometimes it is unpalatable. OK, let me just go back. Final word to you, Danielle. Um, what Michael's saying there is, look, media do reflect the voices of victims. They, they do give uh, spaces and the programmes like this actually expose criminals like John Gilligan for being liars and for being manipulators. And we do see that this is a person that has spent 17 ye years in jail. Yeah. Does that message not get through? Well, if you have a look back at the documentary and the, the talk about the inevitability of going to prison, but it's not a deterrent. So the problem is, is that it's not, it's not working. So we have to really begin to think about how could we together in a more wraparound approach, look at this as a more systemic issue because just using things like prison sentence do doesn't change things. The cycle continues and it's getting worse and we need to think about that in a different way. And it's for all of us and it's for the state and it's a lot of talk to the government. There was a massive thing around the Citizens' Assembly and drug use this year. And, you know, we need to begin to really critically look at that. All right, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to David and Danielle and the two Michaels for both joining me on Skype this evening. Sean is going to be with me a little later in the programme, but next, hundreds of drivers caught speeding on National Slowdown Day. We talked to the top Garda in charge of the operation. Do stay with us. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Well, the number of speed detection cameras used on the country's roads is to increase by 20%, the Justice Minister has confirmed. 250 motorists were caught speeding today as part of a 24-hour road safety crackdown. National Slowdown Day has seen some notable speeds detected, including one driver exceeding the limit by more than 60 kilometres per hour. Well, this evening, Assistant Garda Commissioner Paula Hillman came in to tell me more about the guard operation, and you're very welcome to the programme. You might tell me about what else you and your force detected today. Yes, well, today was one of our national slowdown uh, operations. We run them throughout the year. This in 2023 was our third of the year. Uh, it was planned to coincide with Back to School and their Back to School road safety campaign but very much with the increase in number of road fatalities and road deaths, and especially in August, which was really a, a terrible month um, for us in Ireland. Uh, it really took very much more relevance today as well and the focus on, on educating people about speeding and, and the impact speeding has, has uh, on driving. So the operation that started at 7am this morning and it runs to 7am tomorrow morning, um, our most uh, recent update, which was at tea time, uh, we've checked over 100,000 drivers and detected 250 exceeding the speed limit. But with that, and I think it, it is, uh, should be acknowledged that actually you can see the vast majority of people are driving within the speed limit. And I really welcome that. And I, I think that's to be welcomed. But where we see people speeding, we do see some excessive speeds. So Earlier today, you'd mentioned one, um, Dundalk, we'd seen um, someone driving at 161 kilometres an hour in a 100 kilometre an hour zone. Uh, earlier today, I was out in the ground and actually just as I arrived out, my colleagues detected someone driving at 135 kilometres an hour in an 80 kilometre an hour zone. Um, so, you know, and we know that actually about 73% of fatal road traffic collisions occur in 80 and 100 kilometre an hour roads. So they are some of the most dangerous roads and the ones that really we need to focus um, our attention on. Given the fact that we have had so much discussion around road safety and we have seen such tragedy in we our have. country over the last month, were you surprised that you were still finding people today speeding at such excessive speeds? 
Um, no, unfortunately not, because we have seen it before. But what I, I think is to be welcomed is that the number of people we detected is down from what we were seeing really last year when we were doing the same type of, of um, uh, operation. But I just think again, and this is the whole idea, and I'm welcome even this evening being on the show, is, is to really emphasise the impact of, of, of speeding. Um, if, if someone, a pedestrian or, or, or motorcyclist, um, is in a collision with a vehicle uh, that's travelling at 50 kilometres an hour, they have a 50% chance of survival. If the vehicle is travelling at 60 kilometres an hour, they have a 10% chance of survival. The higher the speed, the greater the consequences. And we just, that is our appeal today, that people slow down and also drive at an appropriate speed to the weather and road conditions that they're driving in. We know that there's a number of investigations ongoing about those recent fatalities mm -hmm. and I know the comments that you're going to make are being made in general terms, but 25%, one in four of the people who died were passengers mm -hmm. in vehicles. They weren't responsible for driving. But do you have a message to those passengers as well? What more could they do? Yeah, and I think just to say, yes, I mean, our, our thoughts and our sympathies go out to all the families that we've seen impacted um, by, by death in our roads, but very much there's been some real tragedies over the last month, and I am talking in general terms now as well about road, very, about road safety. I think for passengers, and we have seen that increase, and especially um, in, in, in younger people as well, passengers and pedestrians, and passengers can help influence driver behaviour. You know, if, if they say or they're uncomfortable with, with the, the speed potentially that the, the driver is going at, you know, asking them to slow down, um, not to distract the driver as well. Uh, and I just think that we could encourage um, that, that those good behaviours because we want everyone, you know, we want everyone to get to where they're going safely. Um, you know, we, we have seen you know, far too many uh, collisions this year. We know now everything is up for examination when it comes to trying to reduce the number of road deaths. We hear um, the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, announcing that there will be a 20% increase in the number of those speed detection vehicles. What else would work? Would AI work? Would using technology to perhaps detect if people are using their phone in their car or not wearing a seatbelt when they're driving or when they're a passenger, would that perhaps help? Well, I do think it's something we need to look at in terms of how we can uh, look at increased uh, technology right across road safety. It is something that, as part of the government road safety strategy, that I, and I sit on, the, on the, the, the partnership board as well with many of our partners, including the Road Safety Authority. And I do think when you look at other comparable countries, uh, even the Mount uh, of uh, static either safety cameras or average speed cameras that they have as well, that we, we have two average speed cameras here in the state. We have one in the M7 and, and the Port Tunnel in Dublin. And we know where there are average speed cameras, people slow down. And that's what we want. We want people to slow down um, to save lives. And yes, there are um, other countries, Spain, for example, they use the safety cameras to detect um, people not wearing a seatbelt or a mobile, using a mobile phone. And that is certainly something, I mean, it would take a lot of discussion. I know it'd be a lot of discussion at governmental level, but it is something certainly through the, the road safety strategy, uh, how we can use a technology and increase technology to detect road traffic offences. So it is something certainly that I know that that's been looked at as part of the government road safety strategy. And something you would welcome? Well, I think anything that, that reduces road deaths is to be welcomed. We also know that the government intends to meet tomorrow. I think Helen McEntee and Jack Chambers are going to meet tomorrow, discuss the possibility of increasing the number of penalty points for motorists where they are detected committing more than one driving offence. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you think we need to act on in this country? 
Well, I think very much that legislation is, is a matter for government and, and we in Garda Shikona will, will enforce the legislation that, 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 that government uh, implement. Uh, but, but what I would say, uh, I mean, we are already detecting these offences. So these, these are people who have committed multiple offences um, that we are detecting. And then at the moment, uh, they only get the points for, for the most serious offence. So again, I think something that anything that, if looking at other jurisdictions, looking at how we can um, look at what are the consequences. So Because that's also what, what needs to be. I think uh, helps and contributes to, to uh, road safety is partly enforcement, how we then look at education, how we look at design, but also when that enforcement takes place, what are the consequences? So again, I'm sure the government will take, you know, to take fully take into account um, thoughts and, and, and feedback, but anything I think that, that reduces deaths on our roads is to be welcome. What about something like looking at how we teach people to drive? I mean, we teach people how to get into a car, operate a car, reverse a car. Do we teach people how to drive a car safely enough in this country, do you think? Well, I know that that's something the Road Safety Authority are looking at and looking at what the, the, the initial driving test uh, looks at. Uh, and again, a lot of what we do, we do look at other countries and what is good practice to see because some of other countries um, you know, do not have the number of, of road fatalities that, that we're, ha we're experiencing currently at the minute. So I know it is something that the Road Safety Authority, who are responsible for, for driver testing, are, are, are currently looking at. What about your own division? What about road policing? Do we need to see more visibility there? Because I think anecdotally, people feel that there has been a drop-off. Yes, and I know, and I know very much, and, and rightly so, people have said about the, the you know, the, the enforcement by Angarda Shikona. And we are committed very much to play our part uh, in terms of enforcement. We're the National Police Service. Uh, we have roads policing members right across the country. Uh, the numbers are um, slightly reduced on what they were, but I think it's also in the context of how we give our, our members the, the information. So we have analysts who help us you know, focus on where we know collisions are happening, uh, the Type of offences that are happening, also the equipment we're giving them. So, you know, we, we're looking now very much at um, how, again, technology, so all, all members, not just roads policing, but roads policing members led the way in the rollout of our mobility devices. So we can uh, uh, live time uh, at the road input the fixed uh, charge notice, but also have access to information. So uh, it was on again today, it's been documented the, um, the, the later on in the year, we will have access to, to live time no insurance data. And also we have access to driving license data. So I think that collaborative approach about how our roads policing members can access information to help them do their job. I, you know, we didn't have that previously, which I think is advantageous. Um, in December, we introduced the drug wipe to, uh, for, for drug detection. So I think you know, we are giving our roads policing members new, new equipment to do their job, which I think needs to be taken into account. And also, while roads policing is a specialism, about 25% of uh, detections in terms of road safety are undertaken by our regular uniform colleagues, and, and I pay tribute to them as well. So it's, but you'd still probably appreciate a few more of the new recruits into your own section? Well, I think like any of the other my Assistant Commissioner colleagues, we will all be, yes, you know, I will be bidding to get some of the new recruits. Well, I would get some of the existing members and the new recruits will go to the, to the, the stations, yes. All right, Assistant Commissioner, thank you for coming in and speaking to us this evening. Thank you. We'll just leave that there. Next, who will be the big winners and who are the big losers in the big political season ahead with elections just around the corner? Please stay with us.
Power Media political correspondent Sean Defoe is back here in studio with me and I am also joined by Louise Byrne, Irish Daily Mirror political correspondent and by Dr Adrian Kavanagh, lecturer in political geography at Maynooth University for a preview of the new political season. It sounds like succession, the finale or something, doesn't it? The new political season, but it is going to be gearing up, isn't it? And there is a sense, Louise, that prep for a potential election at some stage in the next 12 to 18 months is in the air. And I mean, if you think about it, this is the last full dirt, dull term before an election. So, I mean, that's what, what everyone is going to be thinking about. We had the Boundary Commission last week. Everyone is in election mode, whether they will say it or not. So I think you're going to see a real upping of the ante now over the next couple of weeks with everyone back. I think you're going to see a lot more aggro from the political parties, a lot more fights. I think you're going to see the government really having to lay down its marker, really having to prove itself when it comes to things like housing, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to the cost of living because they know well that Sinn Féin are coming up behind them and with a, lo a, a, a local elections and the a, a European elections so close next year, it really is the start of a new political term that really does mean something. Do you think the strategy, the tactic is going to be to just get out there and defend our own policies, come on programmes like they do tonight's show and tell us why housing is working or just attack, attack, attack Sinn Féin? I think it's going to be a mixture of both, but I think as well as defending policies, they're going to have to show that they actually work because there seems to be some kind of a disconnect between the public and the government where the public don't really seem to think that the government are really doing anything when it comes to housing, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to the cost of living. So the government are going to have to show that they really are and they're going to have to show that they are taking action. I think it's only natural that they're going to go after Sinn Féin. I think there was kind of a lull in that kind of attack on Sinn Féin recently. A lot of Fine Gael members, a lot of the parliamentary party saying to me that they didn't really think that Leo Varadkar was going after Mary Lou Macdonald and the Sinn Féin bench like say Micheál Martin was when he was Taoiseach. So I think you are going to see that when the new Dáil term is back. They're going to have to get a bit of fire under them because they know and they see the polls all the time. They will tell you time and time again they don't read the polls. They do read the polls and they know that Sinn Féin are coming after them. There was a sense, wasn't there, um, last term that Leo Varadkar hadn't really hit his stride in the way he had first time round. That there was a certain energy lacking. A lot of people are saying that, a lot of people in his party are saying that, that perhaps he seems a little bit bored. He doesn't have that fire under him that he had before. So I think when we are coming up to elections, he has said that he's going to lead Fine Gael into next election. He's going to have to show that he has that passion and he has that fire under him. Because I think a lot of people, they are doubting whether he's actually really enjoying his second term. And I think more so now than ever, when you have the rise of Sinn Féin, last time around, they didn't really know what was coming, the government. They didn't realise that Sinn Féin were going to get as popular as they are. Now that they know that Sinn Féin's support continues to grow, they're going to have to do something. And I think that something has to start with Leo Varadkar showing that he's not bored, as some of his party members think that he is. All right, uh, Adrian, we did, as Louise said, we had the um, new electoral boundaries published last week, this report. I know they're allowed to challenge it, but it'll, it'll probably all go ahead. And the one thing we did see is an increased number of TDs. So we know that this can make TDs, you know, nervous. If there's less TDs, less chances of winning their seat. 14 more TDs, you could argue that the incumbents and the would-be TDs are quite happy by that. It's a greater chance of getting a seat. In theory, yes, that would be the case. But the reality is it all depends on where these new boundaries have been drawn. For some TDs who might find themselves in what was a four-seat constituency, it's now a five-seater. In theory, that should increase their chances because there's more seats. They only now need to win 20% of the vote in that constituency to win a seat, whereas 
or sorry, 16 and 16 to 30 percent, whereas it was 20 percent. In other cases, you've got politicians like Sean Sherlock in Cork East, who's seen his hometown of Mallow being moved into an entirely different constituency, whereas he your still has a hometown where you're your guaranteed home, votes. Yeah. You would think. What happened with Donny Casty, for instance, in before the 2007 general election, and he finished his political career in the Shannons, of course. So these changes can finish a political career. If you look at Sean Sherlock, he's got to make a choice now. Does he follow Mallow into Cork North Central or stay in Cork East? He's got a real Sophie's choice there. Uh, so these changes can make a big impact. Wicklow and Wexford's a very interesting one because the commission created a 40 Wicklow, which is a group of that because all the five TDs are based around the Break Race Zones area, they'll be in that constituency, probably with a second Sinn Féin candidate. They've created a four-seat Wexford where, as far as I can see, all the five TDs are also in that constituency. So another group of that. And then there a constituency, just to confuse us, called Wicklow-Wexford, a treaty there, where there's no sitting TD based in that constituency. You do have Senator Malcolm Byrne, but that's, it's like you've got two group of death constituencies and a group of, group of life constituency right slap back in the middle. So uh, anything can happen with these boundary changes. Um, in terms of some of the other small mm -hmm. constituencies, the three-seater constituencies, the narrative is that this makes it more difficult, more unfair for smaller parties. That is correct. Statistically, that is That proven. is generally correct, yeah. But for yeah. independence, that's a good thing. For independence, it can be a good thing because all politicians generally win most of their votes in and around their home area, in what we call in electoral geography, the friends and neighbours effect. And this is even more the case for independents. If you're an independent like Michael Lowry, and you're in a five-seater, but then it goes to a three-seater, but if, if all your personal, your big personal local vote is still in that three-seat constituency, it's not really going to impact you too much. You'll probably in fact, still- it does you a favour. In fact, it does you a favour because you now have less territory to cover. And that can actually be an advantage to independence because they don't have the personnel or political resources that are bigger political party. So a three-seater, but you still have the seven or 8,000 local votes you always get, that's not bad for independence. Okay, they've had, what is it, six, five, six days now um, to you know, look at these new um, boundaries to sort of absorb it as parties, never mind as individuals. Party-wise, who is worried? Oh, I think Fine Gael has to be worried now. They will tell you they're not. Every party told you after the boundary review, oh, they were delighted and all that the TDs are going to keep their seats and they're going to gain seats in all these different constituencies. I certainly think Fine Gael will be looking at some of these areas and be worried. Look at an area like Donegal, five-seater, it remained a five-seater. You'd have to say Sinn Féin are in with a good shout of taking three seats next time around. You have Joe McHugh, long-time TD who had a big personal vote, who's retiring. Can Fine Gael keep that seat? Finna Fall also under pressure there with Charlie McConnell because of the Micah issue. And then you've got the independent Thomas Pringle. Someone has to lose out there. Same in Kerry where you've got Brendan Griffin retiring. Same in places like uh, Cork Northwest as well with Michael Creed retiring. All these retirements are going to make things very difficult. And then you have some of the areas they might have been hoping uh, for gains in, like in Tipperary, where they might be within chance in Tipperary South. Garrett Hearn now has a, a bit of an easier job. He's based entirely around Clonmel and that constituency gets smaller for him. But a lot of those 
what's it's going to come down to, I think, really arithmetic-wise for the next government is the ones that have gone from four to five. Dublin West, Dublin Midwest, these areas where now the fifth seat is in play. Will that go to maybe a second or third Sinn Féin? Or can Fianna Fáil get one, Fine Gael get a second one? And that's where you're going to see the arithmetic breakdown for the next government. On the flip side, to go back to the three seaters very briefly, if somewhere like Cork Southwest hasn't changed at all, the independent Michael Collins is going to take a seat. So really, it's a two-seater. You've got the Social Democrats leader, Holly Kearns. You've got a sitting Fianna Fáil TD. You've got Fine Gael coming hard and you've got Sinn Féin coming hard. Two of them have to lose out. So you've got these battlegrounds that have already been drawn where there will be big casualties. Uh, it's just a matter of who. Uh, speaking of big casualties, it was being well reported over the weekend that the Green Party were in a state of absolute panic um, after this review was published. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at the number of TDs that they have at the moment, the only real winner there was Catherine Martin, who's gained a seat in Dublin Ratdown. And it kind of means that perhaps she won't have as hard a fight to keep her seat. But I mean, even if you look at someone like Eamon Ryan, he's in Dublin Bay South, which is notoriously a very difficult constituency anyway. They haven't gained any extra seats. You have the likes of Jim O'Callaghan there. You have a Fine Gael stronghold who will want to gain back that seat that they lost when Owen Murphy stood down. So that's going to be very hard for Eamon Ryan. You have the likes of Joe O'Brien. He's going to be really impacted by the division of Fingal into East and West. Where is he going to run? Where is his support base? Even the likes of Frank Snow Duffy, Patrick Costello, Nasa Harrigan and Dublin Central. These are all the people that are really, really under pressure from Sinn Féin. And... It's and are not going to be feeling any more confident if you look at the Sunday Independent polling at the weekend that the Greens is down at a single digit at one, wasn't it? Yeah, and the real question is, who's that going to be? Like, who is their one TD going to be if that poll comes true? And everyone is kind of thinking, is it going to be their leader? Is it going to be Catherine Martin, who really does only have the very safe seat? Again, coming back to the whole kind of Wicklow-Wexford thing, a lot of people in Leinster House kind of assuming at this stage, which is unfortunate for him because he's the chair of the Ox Housing Committee, that Stephen Matthews, is kind of fighting a losing battle out in Wicklow because one of those seats has been taken away and it's kind of, he was in trouble anyway. Is he going to be able to maintain that seat? So I think it's going to be hard for the smaller parties, particularly with the creation of those smaller constituencies. But a party in government, you really would expect them to have a better chance. But it seems like it's very, very bad news for the Greens. Mm, speaking of smaller parties, Adrian, um, another party that was pulling very poorly at the weekend and again is going to be in trouble potentially is the Labour Party. Yeah. Do you think ultimately they will be able to somehow amalgamate with the Sock Dems before the next election. Do you think that's where that vote has to go? That might be one way out. Now, whether that's what the Social Democrats are looking for, I, that remains to be seen, so it might not happen. They would say no. They probably would say no, program. yeah. Mm. You might need what happened with Democratic Left and Labour in the 2000s, a reverse takeover of Labour by Democratic Left, probably the same with the Social Democrats. But yeah, it was a really bad boundary report for Labour as well. Uh, mm. Uh, you look at it and you see Brendan Howland under more pressure in Wexford. Uh, I know there was no major changes made in Dublin Bay South, the party leader's constituency, but that's going to be a major battleground. Uh, Fine Gael as Fine Gael's going to be looking for extra seat. Sinn Féin might even fancy their chances too there. Uh, very little good news for Labour. Of course, the Sean Sherlock case we mentioned already. Alan Kelly's in a constituency that's gone from five seats. He's now in that three-seat Tipperary North, which would be another group of debt constituency, although his vote's quite locally based. So ironically, he might be one of the Labour people to actually hold up in the face of this. His political epitaph... He'd potentially find himself back yeah, as the as single part. leader of the Labour Party. But his, he might have no yeah, his political epitaph's been written so many times, but uh, he mightn't be too upset by a three-seat Tipperary North. Uh, a bit of good news for Mark Wall in Kildare South. He 
maybe there's one or two Labour people who might say, this isn't bad for us, Mark Wall and Kildare South, but not a great report for Labour. And if they're at 2 or 3% in the national polls, every seat is vulnerable. Um, let's talk about those polls uh, again, particularly uh, the one in the Sunday Independent at the weekend. There was another poll in the Mail as well, which once again showed that Sinn Féin is the biggest party in the country. But based on, on the maths, what looked like the most obvious next government, if the poll turns out to be true and accurate, would be a Fianna Fáil Sinn Féin mm -hmm. government. That, that, that was the easiest solution, wasn't it? I suppose the big question is, is there an appetite from the leader of Fianna Fáil for that. Yeah, the, the easiest and in some cases the only when you rule out that Sinn Féin and Fine Gael are not going to do business. Leo Varadkar said he'll leave the party if that was even a consideration. So that leaves it down to the, the bare arithmetic that, you know, the government has sort of been saying all along when you add up all our numbers, we can get there. That's no longer true in these polls. And Sinn Féin are going to cannibalise a lot of those parties like the guys have just mentioned in, in, in Labour and, and the Greens and others to get there with a, a coalition of the left. So it comes down to Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, is it the appetite? I guess that depends a certain amount on who is leader, whether Micheál Martin is still leader when we get around to that or whether he does want to plumb for an EU commissioner's job. But also we have to remember here, the, like all these parties have different ideologies. Fianna Fáil's ideology has always been power. And that's pretty much the only ideology they've had. And we've seen them, you know, they were never going to do a coalition until they did it. They were never going to go in Fine Gael until they did it. They and were never going to go in Mission Fein until they say. did it. And they have stayed in power. Ironically, we could see another situation where Fianna Fáil is perpetually in power, but as the smaller coalition party. Oh, a new season begins. Some of us can't wait. Thank you all so much uh, for joining us this evening. That is it from our first tonight show. Uh, our programme is available on a podcast on all major platforms. But from all the team here, good night and see you back at 10 o'clock.